Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. This is Duran, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Then I'm joined by Professor Hasten, who studies elections. He's an expert on elections, election law. I learned so much that I didn't even know I didn't know. My message for this week is to know your limit. I was recently at a conference. I was at actually at two conferences not too long ago. People are like, we're going to stay up all night. And it was like, you know, I hit my wall. And normally I'll just push through, but it's like, I'm tired. And I should honor the fact that I'm tired. I should go take a nap or I should go lay down and come back later maybe. But like, I know my limit. And sometimes we push to other people's limits because we don't want it to be awkward or we don't want to make people uncomfortable or, you know, this is peer pressure. But like, know your limits, y'all. Know your limits so that you can operate the best you operate. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So we are recording this on Sunday night, just a few hours after the world found out the news that basketball star Kobe Bryant, along with his daughter, his 13-year-old daughter, and also a basketball phenom in her own right, Gigi, along with her teammate, her teammate's parent, and the pilot have all passed away in a helicopter crash in Calabasas, California. There are have been reactions to this all across the board, understandably so. Um, grief is complicated and public grieving even more so. And I think especially given some of the things in Kobe's history, it has been a complicated day for a lot of people and elicited a lot of very different and perhaps even personally surprising reactions. But for certain, I'm thinking so much of his wife, Vanessa, their other three daughters, one of whom was born just a few weeks ago, and thinking of all of the loved ones, family members, and other people who are struggling with this really, really tragic news today. Yeah, it's... uh. You know, you all are listening to this on Tuesday. We are uh, recording this on Sunday, so there very well might be some new information uh, about this this tragedy that comes to light by then. But I, as all things uh, in my life now, I process so much of this as a father. And I'm just thinking of his wife, Vanessa. I am thinking of the family of the other teammates and parent who are, who are on board. I can't imagine, you know, Kobe Bryant, for those of you who don't know, has taken the, you know, helicopter to practice and to games for years and years and years. And so just to to think, you know, that they got on this helicopter to go to his daughter's practice um, as if it were any other day, it's devastating. And I think I'm, this is several hours after we're finding out. And so I think we are all still in the midst of, of processing it. And as Brittany said, there are a range of reactions people have and the grief that they are experiencing because of things that have happened in, in Kobe's history. And, and those are not things to be glossed over. And I think that it can be hard to hold a lot of complicated truths and realities at once. 
but I'm I'm so sorry for his family and and for that that little girl who's 13 years old. You just gotta hold the people you love close because um, this whole thing this whole thing is so fragile. We are but little pieces of dust in the grand scope of the universe. And so every day, you know, hold on to every day because you don't you don't know what's around the corner. Yeah, you know, as you said, Clint, you know, tomorrow is not a guarantee. Um, and so we have to make the most of our life while we have it um, with our loved ones. And, you know, it's also not the first, it's, it's one of a string of helicopter crashes that we've seen lately. That's also sort of an aspect of this. Just here in New York City, there was a helicopter that crashed actually into a roof of a building a couple months ago. Uh, there was a crash in Hawaii a few weeks ago. Apparently, you know, when you look at the data, there's actually been an increase in helicopter crashes over the past couple of years. And there's some data to show that being in a helicopter is actually between 27 and 85 times more dangerous than being in a car, which is substantially more dangerous than flying in a plane. So this is something to, to think about in terms of how we're getting around and how um, the risks of taking, you know, a helicopter, like I personally, I don't even know how to like react to this. I'm still processing, but I think, you know, first and foremost, it is to stay close to the ones in your life that you love. Uh, spend the time that you have with them. Um, and to the extent possible, be safe, right? Don't engage in unnecessary risks and just sort of live your life to the fullest and do so in a way with an eye towards what your legacy will be, um, how the choices that you make now can impact um, those around you uh, and those in your life and how ultimately um, you might be able to impact the world before you go. You know, 41 is just such a young age to die and 13 is just so wild. Her whole life was ahead of her and the other uh, family that was in uh, in the helicopter too. Just so sad. And like everybody said, a reminder to tell the people you love that you love them because you really don't know when it'll be the end. You know, it's wild right now to watch this happen and watch the Grammys happen at the same time because it's like this you know, display of wealth and the red carpet and all the celebrity. And, and like, people are still mourning in that very area. So I'm getting a lot of texts from friends who are like, it is weird right now because there's all this celebration around the Grammys and there's all this sadness about Kobe. It's just sad. We got to figure out what we do about the reporting. It is wild that his family might have found out from TMZ. Like, that is sort of a, you know, as much as a news cycle is a news cycle, I would hate to look at my phone and see an alert or something on Twitter that told me my loved one or my family member died before anybody called me, before I got any text message or phone call from any medical professional. Like, that is just really, that is scary. Yeah, DeRay, I'm glad you said that. I, um, like others, immediately went to social media when I first was texted the TMZ link and the amount of misinformation, incorrect information, mistaken information, half information, reports with no sources, no official sources that was floating around for hours, dramatically confusing people. I mean, including naming people who folks said were on the helicopter, like Rick Fox, who are actually not on the helicopter. This is a culture in which speed is rewarded over accuracy. And so often, it matters more to be first instead of to be right. And I found myself deeply frustrated with how quickly we were moving and kept saying to myself, I wish we would just slow down 
And that meant that I had to model that in my own life and actually slow down and tweeted about it and then got offline and prayed and tried to send loving energy to the surviving family members and all of the folks having lots of different reactions to this and then tried to resume the conversation if and when I was ready. And I never think that it is wrong for any of us to take the time to do that as we need. One of the ways that Kobe made history that may be surprising to some is that in 2018, he became the first pro athlete to also win an Oscar for his animated short, Dear Basketball. A friend of the pod, Matthew Cherry, stands a chance to continue in that tradition and become the second pro athlete to win an Oscar in the very same category, actually, with his animated short, Hair Love. For those of you who haven't seen Hair Love, I absolutely urge you to go check it out. It is about a black little girl learning to embrace her natural, curly, coily, kinky hair. There's a really, really sweet ending that I won't spoil for you, but most certainly as a black girl who has been on that journey myself, I found it both endearing and empowering. And we're really grateful that Matthew Cherry made this film, and we're really hopeful that he walks away with that Oscar. So if you're an Oscar voter and you're listening, we hope you make the right choice. And with that, the news. So uh, if you've been following on social media, there's been a lot of debate around the 1619 Project. And in various outlets, there have been different historians who've raised some concerns about the specific points made or not made in the series. And so as a disclaimer, as many of you know, I was part of the project. I had two poems in there, uh, but I still thought it would be important to bring this up. And specifically, there was a great piece in the Boston Review uh, by historian David Waldstreicher that gave what I thought was one of the best arguments, most holistic arguments about the sort of back and forth. So the essence of it is this. One of the main concerns that some historians had was that Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the writer and the sort of head of this project, an incredible journalist at the New York Times, asserted that, quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery, end quote. And that, open quote, we may have never revolted against Britain if the founders had not believed that independence was required in order to ensure that slavery would continue, end quote. So some of these historians have raised concerns espousing what we might call the establishment, the traditional view, insisting that it is anachronistic to see slavery as central to our understanding of this decades-long revolutionary period. And according to this view, the revolution was in fact fundamentally anti-slavery. Uh, such accounts emphasize that northern states restricted the slave trade and began to institute gradual emancipation during and after the Revolutionary War. And then enslaved people used the ideals of equality that were voiced during the revolution to press for their own eventual case for freedom. Although a civil war was fought over what the government could and could not do about slavery, these historians say that Lincoln and other members of the Republican Party basically envisioned a path to emancipation under the Constitution and then made it happen. On the other side is a group of scholars who see a much more complicated and multi-sided struggle in the American Revolution that was about colonizing and winning power and authority. And they see slavery as something that is far more than just a peripheral matter. Uh, they do not take for granted the fact that the story is primarily one of uncovering the motives and beliefs of the founders, which is a tricky thing, right? Because we're trying to get in the heads of these people who were founding fathers and who were you know, in charge of this sort of revolutionary period. And these historians work considerably undercuts this like glass half full version that Walt Stryker 
talks about the traditional narrative being, uh, which sees the end of slavery as a long-term consequence of American idealism and American independence. And so the essence of it is this, right? For so long, if you're if you're like me in your American history class in elementary school, middle school, and high school, you were taught about the American Revolution, and you were probably never taught. If you're like me, or I can I'll use I statements so I can speak from my own experience. I was never taught that the American Revolution had anything to do with slavery. Uh, slavery was completely erased from the entire narrative of that period of time, and it was singularly focused on liberty and you know the Boston Tea Party and equality and getting the monarchy off of the American backs so that we could be free. Even though, obviously, as a as a black person. Person, I was continuously struck by the irony of liberty and freedom being the centerpiece of discussion while millions of black people were enslaved um, while this was all happening. So there's that, this idea that uh, it has been completely erased from history. And on the other side are people who are like, how can we reckon with what the American Revolution stood for without reckoning with the fact that so many people who were uh, screaming for liberty were also the owners of human beings and were enslavers. It's important to know that this debate was taking place and happening at the time of the revolution itself. And so, for example, in 1767, American protesters were claiming that unfair taxes amounted to a form of enslavement, and they were being called out for their hypocrisy by a lot of their friends. There's one quote that uh, the historian points out. He says, Oh, ye sons of liberty, pause a moment, give me your ear. Is your conduct consistent? Can you review our late struggles for liberty and think of the slave trade at the same time and not blush? He also mocked the racial justifications of slavery, saying, Methinks were you an African, I could see you blush. So all of this is to say that, you know, people saw the hypocrisy at that point. They saw it at that moment. And what the 1619 Project has done, I think, is sharpen the contours of the debate, right? Before, part of what I'm really grateful to Nicole and, and so many of these folks in this project for is that this wasn't even something that was a debate happening in public. It was certainly a debate happening in historical circles, but in public, people weren't debating necessarily at any scale whether the American Revolution was tied to the institution of slavery, but it most certainly was. Uh, and I encourage you to read this piece in the Boston Review. There's also a piece in the Atlantic by Adam Sower, and also to read the initial response by Jake Silverstein, who's the editor of New York Times Magazine, to some of the criticism. I think it is uh, an incredible history lesson for everyone and well worth your time. So I tried my level best to follow this back and forth as it was happening live. But as you said, a lot of this is inside baseball in the world of historians. And there's back and forth over something in every industry that those of us on the outside of the industry don't understand all that well. So I tried my best to follow it. And as somebody who is not a historian, I agree with you, Clint. Um, Adam's piece and this piece from the Boston Review, I think, help those of us who uh, did not get PhDs in history get what's going on. And as I was reading both of those pieces, one of the things I struggled with was why the desire to keep things as they have been, right? And I, I know scholarly, like in, a, in an intellectual framework, I understand why, but emotionally I was like, what is, the, what is the need here? Why is this group of scholars so intentional and hell-bent on proving their point and preserving the existing and established historical understanding about the American Revolution not being related to slavery as it has? Been. And I was like, maybe they just want to protect their life's work, which is a human 
reaction, right? To say like, I've been doing this my whole life and you want to tear my life's work and research down and uh, confront it um, all at once. I'm sure that there was an emotional reaction to that. But then I thought about the white middle-class dominant culture attachment to tradition. And the fact of the matter is there are so many times in so many industries in so many ways that this is constantly happening. So I, in fact, didn't have to be a historian to understand this simple fact that there is a need often from white people to protect a story of redemptive and redeemed whiteness that then justifies their privileges. If that ever gets undermined, taken apart, pushed back, then it actually makes you question the entire structure of whiteness, the privileges that you've been taught, and the story that you have been led to believe about the people that you come from. So I imagine that that is difficult to with, and yet and still, it's something necessarily that we have to part with as a country and across the world. I also don't think that we can disentangle from this argument, this latest iteration of the argument, rather, the fact that this was brought up once again under the leadership of a Black woman, a Black woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a MacArthur genius grantee, who is unapologetically herself, who will wear her long nails and red hair and speak up and show up for Black people always and in all ways. I know that Nicole has even come out and shared things that she would have done differently, statements that she would have made differently. And yet and still, I just do not believe that we can separate how Nicole shows up in the world from what's happening. Thank God for the fact that she is undeterred from being her authentic, beautiful Black self. There were so many connections drawn by the 1619 Project that really haven't been refuted, right? I think much of this is about what is the appropriate mix of interests and motivations for the American Revolution, and was it sort of mostly about freedom and liberty and these ideals that would then eventually become something that expanded to other groups to some extent? Uh, or was it mostly about preserving slavery, preserving institutions that were oppressive, preserving uh, or fighting for the ability to expand into indigenous lands, which is another aspect that has been cited by historians as a motivator for some people at that time to reject British rule. And I think it is all of those things. And it depends on, you know, which groups you're talking about. Are you talking about folks who owned hundreds of enslaved people in Virginia? Or are you talking about folks, you know, in the Northeast who may have begun the process? of emancipation. There isn't sort of one narrative. And I think what a lot of this is about is which thread of thought or which thread of history becomes the dominant explanation for what happened at that time. Either way you slice it, it is clear that slavery was an influence for many of the folks that participated. It was a motivation for many of the folks to actually rebel against the British. It was something that was core to what we saw in the historical record. I mean, you look at the first person who is known as one of the first casualties of the American Revolution was Crispus Attucks, who was the first person uh, killed in the Boston Massacre. He was Black and Native American. He had formerly been enslaved and then escaped. 
And after British soldiers murdered him and a couple of other people after that, it was actually John Adams, one of the founding fathers that was essentially the prosecutor of the case who defended the British soldiers. This is right before the American Revolution. He defended the British soldiers and blamed Crispus Attucks' quote, mad behavior in precipitating the Boston Massacre. He was basically the prosecutor that we've seen in every case of a police shooting, defending the police rather than seeking justice uh, for a black man that was killed. And so like, there are so many themes here when you look at the historical record that not only were in play during the American Revolution, themes of racism, themes of white supremacy, things that were baked into the Constitution. I mean, you look at the Three-Fifths Clause, which was paired with the Electoral College as an institution designed to help strengthen the power, the political power of slaveholders. And even today, we still see that institution disproportionately advantaging white voters over black and brown voters and resulting in the political reality we are experiencing right now. So a lot of these things were hard-coded. Um, they are present in the Constitution. They are present at the founding. They are present in the founders. They are present in many of the people who they built a coalition around to fight the British for various reasons. Um, and I think to deny that or to depict it as somehow separate from the American Revolution, I think is just fundamentally disingenuous and is designed to uh, advance a particular narrative um, that isn't telling the whole story uh, at best. I think the other piece of this is just questioning why we weren't taught so much of this in the first place. And I think a good place to look is just how folks who are learning about history, how folks who are learning about politics, political history, um, what are the institutions that are training or educating folks and what type of content are people actually actually being exposed to. 68% of undergraduate programs in political science nationwide, according to the American Political Science Association, do not offer courses specifically on uh, race and politics. So I, I would imagine it's probably not too different when you're looking at history. At the undergraduate level, at minimum, you should at least be exposed to these ideas uh, you should be able to wrestle with and grapple with um, this complicated history. And oftentimes our institutions to this day are not preparing us for that. And I think that's why the 1619 Project has been so vital and so essential as uh, providing information that so many people uh, have yet to hear. Clint, thank you for bringing this because I'll admit, so I, I like everybody, read the 1619 series of essays when they came out. And I saw that there was a controversy that brewed afterward because there were some historians who wrote a letter saying that they disputed some of the framing. I also saw that Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the architect of the 1619 Project and wrote the opening essay, I saw that she apologized to some degree and said that she understood some of the pushback and might have chose different words, but the core of what she said she still believes in. But I just like couldn't, I was like missing the fault line. So Clint, thank you for helping to clear that up. I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, is this conversation about like who gets to decide what history is, who gets to write about history, how do we write about history, and what are the things that we should debate over? And I think what's interesting about this is that there were a set of Black scholars who also challenged some of the factual assertions made in parts of the 1619 Project, but would not sign the letter because in signing the letter, they felt like this was an attempt to silence a way to think about history. And one of those people was Nell Painter. Uh, she has an essay that you should read called How We Think About the Term Enslaved Matters. And what she essentially talks about is that the first people who uh, came in 1619 to Jamestown were not enslaved. They were actually indentured servants. And that that matters for a host of political reasons as she frames it. So she's not downplaying the role of slavery, but she's just saying that this is what happened and what didn't happen. And 
if we sort of make every single black person who came to America into an enslaved person, we are actually changing the narrative of how complex blackness has been in the United States. And I think that's interesting. And like, it wasn't until I read this back and forth that I actually understood those contours. I'm also interested in how the 1619 Project is actually being a part of a curriculum at the district level. So not just in classrooms with individual teachers, but Buffalo Public Schools is now including in the curriculum. And like, what does it mean when text books actually don't tell the truth or don't provide a, an analysis of history that focuses on race uh, and we have to supplement it. And it is, I'm hopeful that some of the 1619 essays will actually just be included in the foundational text themselves so that, you know, school districts won't have to buy the 1619 project as like a set of magazines, but like, it'll just be in textbooks. It'll be printed. And also, you know, I was looking at some of the criticism from the right of the 1619 project and the national review, which we agree on almost nothing with, a right-wing paper is that I read their critique of the 1619 Project and they literally were like, what is race? It was all money. Race had nothing to do with it. Money is the only thing that mattered. And you're like, well, there might be some things we can disagree with, but that's not true, buddy. That ain't true. So I encourage people to not only read the 1619 Project, but you actually should engage in some of the back and forth to just see it in the sense that it helps us understand how complicated this retelling is and how the retelling shapes the way we think about power. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So my news is about King County in Washington State, which is where Seattle is, uh, where for the first time, residents will be able to vote from their phones. So we've talked about, obviously, the huge issues around election security and hacking and voter suppression. But this is actually happening in a major U.S. city right now. People are able to vote via the Internet on their phones. And this is happening right now. Early voting started on the 22nd of January. It goes all the way through 8 p.m. Pacific time on February 11th for the King County Board of Supervisors election. Now, this is a new technology that is being piloted at the local level, um, but could have huge implications for how we conduct elections moving forward, for addressing issues of access for folks uh, who will no longer have to wait in two, three, or four-hour lines in some places if you are able to just vote from your phone, but also presents a whole host of new issues um, regarding hacking and access to people who don't have phones and don't have access to the internet, etc. I'm just fascinated. Fascinated by this, it is part of a growing movement to begin implementing internet based elections, usually at the local level uh, in the U.S. So in 2010, uh, the D.C. Board of Elections and Ethics created an internet-based election portal and invited uh, security experts to probe it for vulnerabilities. They quickly scrapped that idea because a student from the University of Michigan uh, managed to hack that system. Um, But then other counties began to experiment with it as well. So West Virginia began allowing overseas voters to submit absentee ballots via a blockchain voting app. And also counties in Utah, Oregon, and Colorado have tested mobile voting for a small number of overseas voters. So King County is going to be the first general election that is run by internet-based voting. But this could be the first of many down the road. And so I'm fascinated by what you all think about this. The other thing to also note is that there's actually an initiative that's gathering signatures in Florida, which of course is a critical electoral state, to allow people to vote by internet there. So this is all happening pretty quickly. A huge set of risks, a huge set of potential benefits to implementing these types of technologies, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm one of those people who took scandal very literally and watched it entirely too much to trust machines with my vote. And I know people laugh at me and I like I still fill out a paper ballot. They still use them where I vote. And I know that the paper ballot gets fed through a machine. Like I know that I, it's never going to be a machine free process in the 21st century. But it makes me nervous. And I really tried to read this in an open minded way, especially considering the fact that leveraging smartphones in particular could actually not just increase turnout, but also increase access. Because when we actually look at racial disparities around Internet and broadband access, it is the smartphone that actually closes the digital gap for Black and Latinx people. Black Latinx folks and white folks all have around an 80% ownership of smartphones in their respective groups. And so on the one hand, I do recognize that there is a potential for greater equity, greater access, greater turnout. But I'm also just thinking about all of the things that we say are too hard when it comes to increasing equity, access, and turnout at the ballot box. We keep saying that a voter holiday is too hard. People say that a federal voting holiday 
holiday is too hard. But we've never really had that conversation about what's possible at the state and local level if a county were to do it or a precinct were to do it or a district were to do it. We've not really talked about what it would look like for providing free rides to the polls to not actually be something that we relied on Uber and Lyft to do, but to actually be something that's accessible to all from the government. I just think that there are so many things that we keep saying are impossible, but that actually don't take nearly this much financial investment or infrastructural change like a technology-based solution that we refuse to try. And I'm hopeful to see that as we're having these conversations about technology, we're also doing the fundamentally basic things that we know can drive voter engagement and turnout. The thing to remember about this uh, election that's happening in Seattle with online voting is that it is for the King Conservation District Board of Supervisors, an election that typically has voter turnout of less than 1%. And it's not for all of Seattle. It's not for any other position in Seattle but this, because the Secretary of State in Seattle has continued to maintain that she has no faith in online voting. The other thing is that the way that they are sort of managing this is that When you vote, you're going to actually get a PDF, like it's going to turn it into a PDF and then you approve the PDF and then that gets sent in to try and bypass this idea that everything gets dumped into like a spreadsheet and then the spreadsheet can be manipulated. So that's sort of interesting. Brittany and Clint, I think you're right. I hadn't really considered like online voting is a good thing, but you think about the places where we mail ballots to people like in Washington, you think about... What would it mean to have a holiday? What would it mean to keep the polls open for 15 hours, two days, like instead of just the workday? Like there are so many other interventions that could dramatically increase turnout and we have just not seriously entertained them and we should. So I'm hopeful that that'll be on the the schedule for November. I think that there's some interesting organizing work that can happen in November and definitely in the next four years. So speaking of voting, you all know it's one of our favorite topics around here because it is so critically important. It's not the only thing that matters, but it certainly matters a great deal. And I know you all remember Amendment 4 in Florida. We've talked about it a lot um, from this past election cycle. It was the largest voting rights restoration in modern history at the time of its passing when over 60% of Floridians voted to pass the amendment that restored voting access to 1.5 million Floridians. That was 10% of the state's population. And Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe that it's about one in five eligible black Floridians. Is that right? That's correct. So major, major, major move by Florida. And of course, here at Pod Save the People, you all knew we threw all of our support behind these efforts that were themselves led by formerly incarcerated organizers, people like Desmond Mead and the team at the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. You probably, listeners, remember us asking you to visit a site that our team built, donate $2 to send petitions, or to tell your Florida friends and family to support the measure. And everyone who supported this effort was, of course, worried because passing an amendment like this in Florida, of all places, is no easy task. But organizers and activists and returning citizens alike were celebrating when the state made history. Unfortunately, there is a frustrating but continuing epilogue to that story. Whenever there's a chance to suppress the vote, we know that the GOP is always finding new ways and new tactics. Um, So last year, as we've talked about before, after Amendment 4 was passed, the state legislature passed a law that essentially defined the completion of a sentence, as stated in Amendment 4, to mean that all fines and fees and restitution had to be paid before someone could vote. And as we shared last week in our example from Mississippi, some of those fees are actually the cost of your own incarceration, 
Florida is one of the 49 states that charges incarcerated people for their own incarceration. As you can imagine, this law, as it was passed by the state legislature, was challenged in court. Last year, a lower court upheld Amendment 4 and undermined the legislature's law. But less than two weeks ago, the Florida Supreme Court issued an advisory opinion that upholds the law, claiming that the completion of a sentence includes the paying of all restitution, fines, and fees. The fight isn't over yet. Activists and leaders, including, in my opinion, the person who should be governor of Florida, Andrew Gillum, are fighting this in two ways. One, they are trying to get lawmakers to change that actual law. And two, they are continuing to fight this thing in the courts. But there are three reasons in particular to me why this matters. Number one is that this is a 21st century poll tax, plain and simple. No one's access to the ballot box should ever be limited by how much money they have, especially when they've served the time that our current carceral system already forces upon them. The second reason why this matters is that the fallout from suppression plays out for a long time. In my opinion, analyzing lot of people's opinion, Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, was the beneficiary of voter disenfranchisement and part of the reason why he has the job that he has now. He tweeted in celebration following this Florida Supreme Court opinion. He said, and I quote, I am pleased that at Florida courts confirms that Amendment 4 requires fines, fees, and restitution be paid to victims before their voting rights may be restored. Voting is a privilege that should not be taken lightly, and I I am obligated to faithfully implement Amendment 4 as it is defined. Voting at first was a right in this tweet, and then it became a privilege just a sentence later. Not only is this a slap in the face to the over 60% of his constituents who voted to pass Amendment 4, but the idea that a sitting governor actually believes that voting is a privilege is a problem that will resound for generations. Here's the last reason why this matters, and I fully plan on becoming a broken record about this. This is just one of many examples that we talk about on this pod all the time of preparatory voter suppression, as in folks are doing it early and often. They're suppressing votes, they're providing disinformation to voters, and they're disenfranchising voters ahead of this 2020 election. Florida, as we know, is a state that can absolutely swing an election one way or the other. Hello, Bush and Gore. It doesn't matter who you support in the Democratic primary if the right is just going to cheat their way to another White House victory. Protecting the vote of all of us must be of the highest order of importance to every single one of us. In addition to going to Fair Fight, Andrew Gillum's organization, Forward Florida, can be found at forwardfla.com. They are working to register as many Floridians as possible and protect their vote. So we've been working closely with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, both in the initial run-up to passing Amendment 4, so getting it on the ballot, uh, helping to collect petitions, uh, and then helping to turn out the vote for it, and now helping to get people registered in Florida right now who have felony convictions. And I think just to level set on how huge and how devastating this potential poll tax can be, I mean, this is something that is projected to affect about 50% 
of all people who had their voting rights restored through Amendment 4. So that's about anywhere between 500 and 700,000 people of the total 1.2 to 1.4 million people who have a felony conviction in the state and are no longer on probation, parole, or in prison. Those 500 to 700,000 people uh, still owe some form of fine or fee or court cost or restitution. So that's who this impacts. This could be the largest poll tax in the history of the United States. So not only was Amendment 4 actually adopted in 1868 as uh, one of the first black codes, and Florida, by the way, was actually the first state to adopt a poll tax in the first place, but now that this has been repealed through Amendment 4, this new legislation that the state has adopted disenfranchises so many people. It's actually quite unprecedented. So when you look at poll taxes um, during the Jim Crow era and even before that, right after Reconstruction, the 1870s, 80s, 90s, they tended to disenfranchise per state about 100,000 to 150,000 black voters. Um, so for example, when you look at Mississippi and Louisiana, which has some of the largest black populations, and passed poll taxes during the Jim Crow era. They disenfranchised between 130 to 140,000 black voters in each state at that time. In Florida, we're talking about anywhere from 250 to 300,000 black voters being disenfranchised by this poll tax. So it's actually like huge and unprecedented and like that's even comparing it to Jim Crow. What is different about this in a good way is that the law that they pass still creates a loophole, two loopholes that can be exploited by organizers and people who are trying to get people to register to vote anyway. The first loophole is that the definition of what fines and fees are owed in the legislation, it specifies that you only owe the fines and fees that are contained, quote, within the four corners of your sentencing document. So this is like the document that you get that says you have, you have to serve this many years, and here are the other conditions of your sentence. Well, it turns out that it varies by county what actually is included in your sentencing document. So in Miami-Dade County, which is you know, one of the largest counties, most diverse counties in the state, actually they don't include, in, in most cases, they don't include fines and fees in your sentencing document. It's included in another document. So that's not included when you evaluate who owes fines and fees. And so people right now are getting registered to vote because of that loophole. Secondly, uh, we're seeing in more progressive counties in Florida, uh, like Miami-Dade County, like Orange County, like Broward County, uh, we're seeing local state's attorneys, uh, we're seeing local courts and the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and, and other organizations uh, collaborate to develop a process uh, whereby the courts can actually modify those sentences uh, to either reduce or ultimately entirely waive uh, the amount of fines and fees people owe as a condition of voting. So they still owe the same fines and fees, but they no longer count towards disenfranchising people. So this is actually a case where like, politically Republicans have sort of shot themselves in the foot. Uh, because what's happening now is large swaths of the state, particularly more conservative areas, more white areas, remain almost entirely disenfranchised due to the law that Republicans passed. But in more progressive areas, areas where more black and brown people live in the state, there are pathways that are being created to get people registered to vote. There's organizing happening on the ground to get people registered to vote. And there's an effort by the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition uh, to actually crowdfund money to help people pay off those fines and fees.
So if you go to wegotthevote.org, you can donate to go towards that fund um, to help people pay off their fines and fees. So all of this, we still don't know how this all is going to play out in November. Obviously, this could ultimately decide the election. It's it's a huge number of voters. Elections in Florida tend to get decided by about 100,000 votes. And we're talking about a million people of which, you know, maybe five to 700,000 are impacted by this particular poll tax. So we really don't know how this is going to ultimately impact the election. But uh, what is promising is that these pathways have been created. And politically, it's black and brown people who are benefiting from this in part because they live in counties where local elected officials are willing to actually help people get registered to vote. The last piece about Florida is that, you know, when we talk about Bloomberg and Steyer, uh, collectively, they've spent more than $300 million on ads alone since entering the race. You know, in talking with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, um, they actually did an analysis, and it shows when you look at the data uh, that you could restore uh, and pay off the poll tax for 90% of all people in the state that owe that poll tax for about $200 million. Um, So literally, it is within the means of the people running for president right now saying that they care about this issue to actually entirely address this issue. And yet we still have not seen that happen. So if you need another thing to do, put a lot of pressure on folks that have money, especially folks that may be running for president that are billionaires, to ultimately put their money where their mouth is and give some money to restore voting rights in Florida. Yeah. So my news is about Houston. So in the fifth ward of Houston, uh, the Houston Health Department conducted a survey and found that 43% of families in the fifth ward have a cancer diagnosis. Now, I legitimately had never heard of cancer clusters. I didn't know that there were communities across the country that for a host of reasons, cancer is showing up in ways that we literally don't see happen other places. And in the fifth district, uh, there are homes that are located by site near the rail yard uh, that has been contaminated by Cresote. And it's been over 40 years of this chemical being sprayed in the air because it's close to the rail yard. And what's hard is that you read some of these interviews and people are nervous about going to the doctors because they don't want to be diagnosed. And, you know, that's not a good thing for your personal health because, you know, you get diagnosed, we can actually help you out. But it's like, why is this happening? And how did this happen for so long? How is this chemical being spread in people's communities for so long without anybody realizing it at the state level, at the federal level. And it really blew my mind. I was like, I didn't know cancer clusters were a thing. Uh, It made me want to think about like what other cancer clusters there are. They know for a fact that there's groundwater contamination and that contamination is like, you know, people might be drinking water that is contaminated and they might be growing things that are contaminated and eating them. But it's sort of wild. 43% of families having at least one cancer diagnosis is just really astounding. And it made me want to do more research about the impact of environmental toxins in community. I know that in Baltimore, there are some neighborhoods when I was at the school system where right by our schools, there had been some toxic dumping or burying of toxic waste underground. And it was actually really close to school sites. And like, I just didn't even know that was a thing. Like, I didn't know this was happening in community. So this was a wake up call to me. I mean, this is precisely how environmental racism and environmental classism play out. And if you are listening, you have access to research about the relationship between poverty and cancer clusters specifically. Please do send it to me. Um, I'm hoping that there is more information and research done and shared um, because in my research, which was brief for this conversation, I mean, relatively brief, right, versus people who do this for their job, I didn't find much on the relationship between 
between poverty and cancer clusters. But it would follow that um, in so many examples of environmental racism and classism that we see all the time that are directly connected to companies and corporations choosing to place harmful things in the ground and in the air and on property that is cheap. Um, And that cheap property is usually where people of color are living and most certainly where people from low-income backgrounds are living. What we know about the greater Fifth Ward in Houston is that nearly half the population was below the poverty level. Three quarters of the ward's residents had incomes less than twice the poverty level. And of those living below the poverty level, 40% were children under the age of 18. What we also know is that there is a clear relationship between poverty and individual cancer. The poverty is associated with higher cancer rates. And as you have probably already guessed, a lack of access to cancer screening and effective treatment. And so I think that we cannot emphasize enough that these are choices that are being made by people to increase their profit margin and take care of their bottom line at the expense of real people. That's the news. And now my conversation with Professor Richard L. Hassan. He's a Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. He has a new book that's coming out called Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Professor Hassan, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's great to be with you. Well, let's just start with how you got into the work around election law, campaign finance. Like, this is... I don't know. It's such a. It feels like such a like focused niche thing to know so well. How'd you get into this? Well, you know, it was kind of an accident. I was getting a PhD in political science, studying Middle Eastern politics. Found that a little too depressing. Decided to go to law school, and ended up pursuing both the law degree and the political science degree. And one of the courses I took was a course called Election Law at UCLA Law School. It was one of the few places in the country where there was an expert specializing in that, a guy named Dan Lowenstein. Took the course, loved the course. When I started teaching, I decided to pick up the course. Eventually, I came onto that textbook as a co-author. And then, of course, in 2000, we had the election meltdown in Florida. The field really took off. And now it's pretty common for it to be taught in law schools and for there to be, in our hyper-polarized era, lots of focus on the rules of the game. How have you seen the laws change over the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years? And I'm asking because, you know, sometimes on the pod, I have people who already know what they do, and I just want the world to know them. Then there are people like you who it's like, I know nothing. You're like, you are the expert in ways I don't even know. I'm like, what What don't I know? So I'm interested to know, like, how is this? Uh, Citizens United, I, 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 like, know about it. But, like, is that the biggest change in the past 20 years? Are there other changes that we just don't, that haven't made the public conversation? Well, I would put Citizens United as maybe number two in terms of what the courts have done. Number one number would be- Number two? Yep, number two. Number one would be the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which was the decision that killed off a key part of the Voting Rights Act and made uh, voter suppression a much easier thing to accomplish. Before the Shelby County decision, states like uh, Texas and parts of states like parts of North Carolina, before they could make a change in their voting rules- They had to go to the Department of Justice or to a federal court in Washington, D.C., and show that their laws would not make minority voters worse off. And this law had been in place since the 1960s. And in 2013, a five-justice conservative majority of the Supreme Court held that 
it exceeded Congress's power to impose this restriction on the states. It violated what the court made up, called the equal sovereignty of the states, and said that unless Congress could show that there was a current problem with intentional racial discrimination in voting in these states, the law could no longer be enforced. Justice Ginsburg, in her dissent, said that this idea of getting rid of this law because you don't need it is like putting your umbrella away because you're not getting wet. And uh, I think she's proven to be right, that we've seen a lot of suppressive voting laws get put into place in the last decade, or I say in the last seven years since this decision uh, came down. But it's a decision that gets a lot less attention than Citizens United. Uh, you know, there may be different reasons for that. People focus on money in politics, which is very important. And I've been very critical of Citizens United. But I put it number two after Shelby County. Now, how would you explain Citizens United to people who aren't familiar with it? So for many years, the Supreme Court took the position that you could limit corporate money in elections because corporate money could distort the process because corporations can amass wealth in a way that individuals generally cannot. And so the Supreme Court in Citizens United reversed those precedents, those precedents that recognized that corporate and large spending could distort elections, and said that there was a First Amendment right of corporations to spend unlimited sums supporting candidates for office. Now, it turns out that we don't see a lot of for-profit corporations after Citizens United engaging in independent spending. You don't see Google or General Motors coming out in favor of particular candidates. That's because they don't want to alienate their business customers. But Citizens United led to a series of follow-on court cases and decisions, as well as changes in the kind of culture of uh, giving to campaigns and spending money. So by now, I had these figures in a recent uh, Slate article. In 2010, the year Citizens United uh, was decided, the largest contributors to various groups that were supporting candidates for election, the largest contributors were uh, a couple from Texas named the Perrys who contributed $7.5 million. In 2018, the last election for which we have full figures, it was the Adelsons, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, the casino magnet in Las Vegas. He and his wife contributed $122 million, which is just astounding. We hear Michael Bloomberg talking about spending up to $2 billion, right? So that is not a direct result of Citizens United, but it's kind of an indirect result of what happened in that case and in follow-on cases. So now you can really spend as much as you want contribute as much as you want. So long as you don't give it directly to a candidate, you can have that same kind of outsized influence over both elections and policy uh, that you couldn't have before Citizens United. What were elections like beforehand? Was it all small dollar donors? Like, I guess I I don't even remember a world without Citizens United. I guess I wasn't even like a very active voter. Uh, Then I was so young. What was it like before? Well, so I think probably the dividing line you'd want to go back to is 2002, Then Congress passed something called the McCain-Feingold Law, or more uh, technically the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002. Before that law, you could give to a federal candidate no more than $1,000, and you could give to a political action committee, you know, one of these independent groups, only up to $5,000. After the McCain-Feingold Law passed, that limit was raised from $1,000 to $2,000. It's now indexed to inflation, so you can now give up to $2,800 to a candidate. And so if you think about how campaigns were run before, say, 2002, there was a lot of these $1,000 and then later $2,000 plate dinners. George W. Bush and other candidates were 
uh, very big at holding dinners and trying to get people to get their friends to give the maximum contribution. Uh, those friends who would get, you know bundle up $100,000 would get special perks, like they'd be able to go golfing with the candidate or have coffee at the White House was something that Clinton did. There was much less outreach to small donors. That really changed with the rise of the internet. John McCain was one of the first candidates to really try to use the internet for fundraising. But then it was really Obama, Act Blue, and now Trump who have been the leaders in getting small dollar donors. And, and that's because it's become a lot cheaper to raise those small dollar donations. You could get $5, you could get $10 from someone now in a way that if you tried to do that 15 or 20 years ago, it would have cost you that much to send out the fancy piece of direct mail. You know, you, you couldn't do it. It wasn't worth it. Now, of course, we're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars in small donations being raised, but also large donations being raised. Hundreds of thousands of dollars going to these PACs. Used to be it was a $5,000 limit. Now there is not that limit uh, effectively anymore, so long as that PAC doesn't contribute directly to candidates. I was looking over an article that you wrote in 2012 entitled, Will Voter Suppression and Dirty Tricks Swing the Election? You wrote it October 22nd, 2012, and it was, uh, you referenced the book at the time, The Voting Wars. And it seems like your predictions about voter suppression came true. Do you think the Dems as a party just didn't get in front of it in time? Do you think people just like didn't pay attention to voter ID and cutting back on early voting and making voter registration harder? These things that you call out so plainly, like what, how, how do we get here? So I think what's happened is that the Republican Party essentially had a choice after 2012 in terms of its electoral strategy. One strategy was to try to moderate and appeal to minority voters and try and expand uh, who might vote for the Republican Party. That was the approach that George W. Bush tried. That was the approach of the so-called autopsy that the Republican National Committee came up with after the Romney loss. So that was one strategy. The other strategy is focus on the shrinking white conservative Republican base and try and make it harder for people on the other side to be able to register and vote. And really, it's that second strategy. It has not been pursued uniformly by the Republican Party in, in every state where they control, but it has been an issue in certain important battleground states. Think Texas, think Wisconsin, think North Carolina, places where uh, you know either the congressional seats or the presidential election might be at issue, and with a shrinking white demographic base for the party, there's a question about, you know, how are they going to keep winning? And I think preserving what looks increasingly like minority rule. Your new book coming out, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. What do we do about it? And maybe before you answer the what we do about it, in this book, you list four threats to the integrity of American elections. Can you talk to us about like what those four threats are? Sure. So one threat, which I've already mentioned, is voter suppression, right? That this is Laws that make it harder to register and vote passed almost exclusively in Republican-dominated states based on the, I would say, discredited idea that voter fraud is a major problem in the United States. And I think voter suppression tends to do two things simultaneously. One thing it does is it convinces Republicans that Democrats are trying to steal the elections through voter fraud and make Republicans skeptical of Democratic wins. And at the same time, the very voter suppression, which forms the basis for these laws, convinces Democrats that Republicans are trying to steal the election. So these efforts 
end up convincing both sides that there's something wrong with how we run our elections. Second threat, one that gets a lot less attention, at least on the left, is pockets of incompetent election administration. And I give some examples like Brenda Snipes, who ran the elections in Broward County, Florida, and all of the problems that she had in terms of being able to accurately count votes. In one election, she left 58,000 absentee ballots, were never delivered to her voters. In another election, she left a medical marijuana initiative off the ballot for some of her voters. And we saw in 2018, when it was the very close race between Rick Scott and Bill Nelson for the U.S. Senate seat in Florida, she could not submit vote totals in her recount in time because her workers did not know how to hook up to the state's website and be able to submit their vote totals on time, thereby disenfranchising some of her county's voters. And so even though I think most elections are administered pretty well in this country, given the resource problems that election administrators have, there are these pockets of incompetence. And these tend to get a lot of attention when the race is very close. We saw Donald Trump relentlessly attacking Brenda Snipes and accusing her of fraud when I think really what was going on was incompetence. So election incompetence is the second problem. Did you think that Brenda Snipes was incompetent or was that a part of a plan? No, I think she was incompetent. I don't. I, I saw no evidence, and and there was a a call for by Rick Scott for an investigation, uh, criminal investigation, and the state police said there was no basis for a criminal investigation. There was no evidence whatsoever that she was engaged in any criminal activity. I just think for years she did not control that office, and yet she was continuously voted back into office by Democratic voters. I I think it's a problem that we really need to pay attention to because you're more likely to be disenfranchised by bad election administration than you are by a voter ID law. The third area that I talk about are dirty tricks. You know, there's both the newfangled high-tech dirty tricks like the Russian misinformation campaigns that we saw in 2016, and then old-fashioned dirty tricks like ballot tampering with absentee ballots, which we saw in the 2018 election in the North Carolina 9th Congressional District where uh, you know, a guy was collecting and changing absentee ballots to benefit the Republican candidate for that congressional seat. Eventually, the state uh, board of elections bipartisan group unanimously re- required a new election. So we've got dirty tricks that get played out a lot in the media, and they cause people to worry about the fairness of the election. And the final thing, and this is maybe the slipperiest one, I'm concerned about the rhetoric of elections, how we talk about elections. Right now, we talk a lot about stolen elections about uh, rigged elections. We hear that language a lot. We hear it from Trump, but we also hear it from Stacey Abrams. You know, we hear it a lot. And then the question is, you know, when is it appropriate to call an election stolen? And if it's not stolen or you can't prove that it's stolen, what does it do to people's confidence in the process if they believe that the election is not being run fairly? I got it. So, so what do we do? Like, is there a are the common sense things actually common sense and good? So like automatic voter registration is something that people talk about as a solution that seems like it's a, a good thing to do, making uh, voting day a holiday. Like, are there any other policy solutions that people should be looking to? It's a multifaceted problem. And I think there's lots that could be done. You know, one thing is, for example, the role of the media. Media's got to be very careful in terms of reporting on, you know, when a state is won, how many ballots are still outstanding. You know, one of the things that we see is that sometimes we saw this in California, lots of races, the Republicans were ahead on election night, but there were millions of ballots still to be counted. And every day, the ballot totals changed. And, you know, some people like former House Speaker Paul Ryan called it bizarre and suggested there was something nefarious going on. I think it's up to the media to explain, no, there are just 
millions of ballots that need to be counted and it takes time. And because those late ballots that arrive tend sometimes to be favored towards the Democrats, it's not nefarious. It's just the reality that ballot totals shift. You know, so so one thing is the responsibility of the media. You know, I think there are questions about whether, uh, you know, suppose that there are documents that are stolen that relate to Hunter Biden and that get leaked close to the election. Should the news media report on them? How should they report on them? Right, so there's a role for the media. There's a role for cybersecurity officials. One of the nightmare scenarios I talk about in Election Meltdown is what if we had a hacking of the power grid in Detroit on Election Day and people have a hard time voting in Detroit, but they vote just fine in the rest of the state of Michigan. Michigan goes to Trump. Michigan puts Trump over the top. We don't have good plan B. We don't have good procedures in place to deal with a botched election when an election has been the subject of a terrorist attack or even a natural disaster. So we should be beefing up our laws for how we deal with those kinds of disruptions of our election. So there's issues related to fixing the laws. You know, there's also issues related to the courts. One of the reasons that we see that restrictive voting laws have sometimes been allowed to stay in place is because some of the courts have allowed these laws to go into effect despite the fact that there's no good proof of voter fraud to justify some of these laws. And therefore, you know, I think the courts have a role to play. They should be going after those laws. They should be accepting the arguments of those who say that these laws are being put in place for no good reason, and they undermine the dignity of each voter to be able to cast a ballot. So I think there's responsibility across the board in terms of all the different facets of how we run an election. And when you think about it, an election is, besides going to war, it's kind of the biggest thing that we do in this country in terms of mobilizing so many people on a single day or a single period of time to try to accomplish this goal, right? And, and what is that goal? That goal is to be able to run a fair election where all eligible voters, but only eligible voters, can cast a ballot that will be fairly and accurately counted, and that the losers will accept the election results as fair. That's something we've done, you know, for a long time, and now it's really under attack. I, I remember writing a blog post in January 2009, when Barack Obama was being inaugurated, and George W. Bush, a very different politician from the other side of the political spectrum, peacefully handed power to Barack Obama. And I said, you know, this is a miraculous moment. We really take it for granted that we have these peaceful transitions of power, but we shouldn't, because it really is a testament to the fact that people have confidence in this democracy that votes are being fairly and accurately counted. And now, of course, today, all of that is under attack. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I listened to what you said, and I never thought about, you're right, that we don't have a good infrastructure for uh, natural disasters or if somebody targets like one district. And when you talked about Brenda Snipes, it also made me think about how election judges and supervisors are like an under-organized part of the infrastructure that like as an organizer, I think about all this work happening on on a lot of stuff around elections, but not like poll judges, right? And that those people actually matter a whole lot. Well, right. It's up and down the system. So there's been some attention paid to the secretaries of state, you know, the, the chief elections officer of each state. And in many states, they're elected in partisan elections. I, I like to get rid of that. But in the meantime, you know, attention has to be paid if there's you know, going to be an election because you don't want someone like a Chris Kobach, who was the secretary of state of Kansas, having all of this power over elections when he's engaged in so many activities designed to suppress registration and voting. But on the local level, you know, really attention should be paid to 
how votes are being counted, what the procedures are, and that there's enough money there. You know, if you're a local county and you have to decide between the shiny ambulance or giving money to election infrastructure, it's hard to choose the election infrastructure. But really, we depend on it, especially now. Our election machines are primarily produced by private companies, and there are all kinds of concerns about security now, about hacking. Everyone needs to pay attention to the kind of unsexy issues of how votes are being cast and how they're being counted. And there needs to be transparency about the process, and there needs to be ways of assuring that you know everyone can observe what's going on and that everything is being done properly. And what about Iowa? Why does Iowa matter so much in the voting phenomenon of the American presidency? And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What can we do about it? Well, you know, I think there's two problems with Iowa being one of the first of the states to be able to weigh in in the nominating process. The first problem is that Iowa, at least on the Democratic side, Iowa is not really representative of the Democratic Party overall. It's not until you get to Nevada and South Carolina where you really start seeing substantial minority populations being uh, taken into account, but yet Iowa has this oversized role. Right, so one problem is the, uh, the problem of the lack of representativeness of Iowa. The other problem is that Iowa uses a caucus system, and for years, every four years, I think I, I end up writing a piece at Slate about how bad the caucus system is. Right? You have to show up in person. You have to be able to show up at that time. So if you're working or you have childcare responsibilities, you're not going to be able to vote. It's really you know geared towards people who are political activists, not necessarily the average person. And you know while that might be a good way of measuring some intensity of preference, it's not necessarily representative of the people of Iowa. So now they're talking about doing other things like having a virtual caucus. They were talking about uh, voting by phone. This raises all kinds of questions about ballot security, which are troubling. And so you might say, well, why doesn't Iowa just change to a primary? Uh, well, then they would have a fight with New Hampshire as to who would go first. And, you know, I think it's become kind of a rite of passage. Anyone who wants to run for office as president, has to go through Iowa and New Hampshire, and they're not going to criticize that process because they're worried that those voters are going to punish them for taking that kind of position. Uh, and so we have this bad system. I would prefer that we had a system that's been proposed for a while of regional primaries. So in one year, everyone in the Northwest would get to vote first. You know, you'd have Oregon, Washington, Idaho, those states vote. In, and then they're, you know, rotated through the different areas of the country. It'd be a lot easier to campaign if you could focus in one area of the country at a time as well. Next time it might be the Southeast. You know, it's Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana voting, something like that. I think that would be a much more rational way to do things. It would be a fair way to do things. But Iowa and New Hampshire have this kind of stranglehold over the process, which I think is troubling for a few different reasons. Are there any places in the country where this matters more than not? Like, are there some states we should be focusing on? Is there like a region we should be paying attention to? I'm trying to, there are listeners who are going to be like, okay, I get it. Uh, and, and they're going to want to know, like, if their hometown or home state or whatever is like a place that really needs some focus. Elections are run well in most places, but paying attention is always a good thing. And, you know, looking for the kinds of changes being made that seem to affect the shape of the electorate. That's really something to focus on. So is the state all of a sudden engaging in a voter purge that's going to remove a lot of people from the voter rolls? I think that could be a problem. Closing of polling places. And, you know, we're in such a hyper-polarized environment right now that I think that these things do tend to get national attention. So when we saw uh, in Kansas or in Georgia, when they were shutting down or moving polling places in ways that 
tended to impact the most on minority communities. This became national news. You may remember in, in North Dakota, back in 2018, Heidi Heitkamp was running for uh, U.S. Senate. She had a lot of support from the Native American community. She was in a tight race to run for re-election. And N North Dakota all of a sudden passed a new law that required people produce a residential street address in order to be able to vote. That's something that most people could do, but not if you lived on an Indian reservation. And so you had what seems like a clearly suppressive law. There was no evidence of any voter fraud that justified such a law, but yet people mobilized. You had tribal leaders getting national support, creating street addresses and creating tribal identification cards so that people would be able to vote. So much effort sometimes is now being put into just making sure people can properly register and vote. Whereas if we had a more automatic system, if we had a, a more rational system, people could put that energy into trying to convince people to vote in a particular way, as opposed to just making sure they're eligible to be able to cast a ballot. I also want to talk to you about the impeachment. Yeah, there's some people, even on the left, who think that this is a distraction, that this only emboldens Trump, that this actually doesn't help the left. There's some people that think that this will discourage people from voting. And then there are others who think that this is this is actually going to show that the Dems want to fight and that they will fight and that they are invested in fighting and that like somebody finally standing up to Trump. What do you think about these articles of impeachment? Well, I don't know what the political consequences are going to be, and I don't think anybody really does. I think the question that needs to be asked is, did the president do something that constitutes an abuse of power? Uh, did he do something that constitutes an obstruction of Congress? And I think when you invite foreign interference in your election, when you pressure a foreign country to manufacture or provide dirt on a political opponent or a political opponent's family member, that's something that should be impeachable. And since we don't know what the political outcome is going to be, I think the Democrats were right to go forward with impeachment. I think they're right to go forward with the trial. This is something that serves as a marker for what is unacceptable conduct. And it's also putting Republicans on the spot to be able to say, do they think this conduct is permissible? And you know, so far, the, the Republicans I've heard in the Senate either seem to be denying that Trump engaged in the activity that he's admitted in, you know, the, the perfect phone call, or they seem to be downplaying the seriousness of it. I think most Americans, when they think about it, are not going to be okay with the president soliciting foreign interference in elections. And, and whether or not that has a positive or negative electoral outcome, just as a matter of what's right and wrong, it's important to call out this conduct and to try to discourage it as much as possible. There we go. Let's talk about why a new book. Like, what is different in this book about the last text you wrote? So the first book I wrote on this topic was in 2012 called The Voting Wars. And the subtitle was From Florida 2000 to the Next Election Meltdown. And now the new book is Election Meltdown. Like, so, okay, so we've reached the next election meltdown. And really what I think has changed, and there was a recent NPR, PBS, Marist poll that showed this, there's a real deterioration in the public's confidence in the fairness of the election process. People are worried about election interference. People are worried their votes are not going to be accurately counted. And I thought it was important to put in one place all the different threats to the confidence in the fairness of the election process. Really, our democracy depends on losers accepting the results after a fair but closely fought election. And so rather than us take it for granted, I thought it was important to highlight what the issues are and to try to get people focused on this. What is it going to take to have a fair election where people are going to say, 
if they're on the wrong end of this. Okay, my side lost, but at least it was a fair contest and we'll fight again another day. In this hyperpolarized environment, hard to imagine, you know, Democrats or Trumpian uh, Republicans being satisfied with being on the losing end. And so the important thing to do now is to try to conduct as fair an election as possible and think about what we can do to minimize the chance of that meltdown in 2020. Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.